What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Brutally Speaking Podcast, the official podcast of MetalNexus.net, where you can get all your show reviews, concert reviews, and so much more. And with me, as always, is Daniel Terry. How are you doing this evening? I am doing fantastic. I am uh, recovering from uh, the disappointment that was uh, my Howard Jones interview. Yeah, that... Uh... Well, we'll just save that for when we actually do the Howard Jones interview, but suffice it to that say, happened. we did a Howard Jones interview and uh, had a lot of technical difficulties to overcome, and Dan got to ask one question, and... Uh, Worth it. Yeah, I mean, sometimes this is what we just have to deal with when uh, dealing with technology, and... Uh, but, you know, speaking of technology, we actually have uh, Eric Gunther, the keyboardist of The Contortionist. They have a new EP getting ready to come out uh, through E1 slash Good Fight Music called No One. Uh, we have had the pleasure of uh, having it for the last, uh, what have we had it for, about a month and a half now at this point? We've had it for a little while. And, I mean, for a four-song EP, like, that, that's quite a long time to, to have something and just kind of really sit in it. And, uh, you know, admittedly, uh, I will say that, you know, I'm not the biggest Contortionist fan, but uh, I know you are. And uh, yeah. you guys did a really interesting chat about them on discography discussion and, and what the band has meant to you uh, in your mental health recovery and so forth. So uh, it was definitely one that uh, I kind of wanted to talk to him about, you know, a lot of different things. The CP is, is I think, a, a, a kind of a shift even from what they've been doing. Um, so that was kind of another thing that was fun to talk about. Yeah, it's definitely a shift. and But, I mean, that that's kind of the contortionist for you. They, none of their albums sound like any of their others no you know they start they start off with kind of more of a deathcore vibe uh which you know we, we talked about on the on the ken sushi episode ken suzy not ken sushi uh, <laughs> and uh you know he had talked about you know kind of beefing it up and making it heavier and that that was really apparent because whenever you got to their second release they had kind of dropped that you know deathcore influence and had gone more in their like spacey rock metal direction and then on language it was even more so like they they've always shifted styles uh pretty consistently throughout all, all their releases so i i would say that the ep being being more of a shift again was not a surprise uh, but it is kind of fun uh hearing them play a cover song because they they never really have done that on a record well, it was kind of it was fun to ask, and especially you know they're on tour right now at BT Bam uh, between the Barry and Mean for anyone who may not know what that acronym is, and uh, you know they obviously put out a, a pretty seminal covers record, uh, you know that's as Eric even talks about just covers so many genres um, that it, you really get a, a truer sense of who between the Barry and me are and what made them who they are and made them so unique and makes them so unique as musicians and as people and, and as an entity. And the fact that, you know, something that we've been told quite a bit in doing these conversations is that, you know, Hey, here's the, here's the thing. Bands always do a cover song or whatever when they're recording uh, an album. I think Josh Todd said that, like, it's a little known secret, even though I think it's a pretty yeah. well-known secret. Like, Deftones are notorious for covers, but they always do them in their recording sessions, and they usually end up on a deluxe edition or whatever. Um, upset album. But it's one of those things where... A lot of the time, it's like a warm-up, a studio warm-up for the bands. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, we have this thing, we know how to do this, like, yeah, fuck it, let's just record on it, but... It's a it's a thing where 1979 I thought was kind of an interesting cover, more in the sense of like a like with the EP title and there being the line in there that I was like oh I wonder if they picked it because of that or if that's where the EP name came from and we didn't necessarily get an answer to that, but I think the fact that when you really sit with this four song EP like I think 1979 the way they did it because it, it's a pretty straightforward arrangement of the song it's it's not like drastically different, um, but I do think that it allows you to start going back into the, the beginning of the EP and create this like continuity of, of, of a cycle between start to finish. Yeah, I agree. It was definitely a strange choice. I thought at first, but just seeing the way, just seeing the way that it tied in kind of, uh, I, I actually appreciated that it was a more straightforward cover because that's one of my favorite songs. So I don't necessarily want to hear it done differently. I have no problem hearing it done. It kind of reminds me of like when Weezer put out their Teal album recently. Solid record. Uh, yeah, it was. And it was just because they played all the songs straight. Like, you know. But I don't think that, people that's, realize that's how hard that is though, about either. Well, yeah, it's hard for Weezer not to just drop into sound like busting out the harmonica and going, you know, full Weezer, you know. Well, I don't even necessarily mean that. I mean, like the fact of how hard it is to make every especially on a record to make everything sound exactly the same as it 
as the version that you're covering, I don't think people realize how hard it is to like get tones dialed in that that specifically. Yeah, it's really hard, and it's especially whenever you're doing you're doing a lot of covers. Uh, I I don't know, man. Like having to having to lock in a different tone. You know, obviously. To, to go from playing Scrubs to playing Paranoid by Black Sabbath just doesn't, you know, and and then going into something like Billie Jean, you know, like that's just, uh, that's just masterful, <laughs> you know, uh, how they did it. And I, I know this episode's not about Weezer, but it's the only thing I could really, it was the only thing I was really thinking about whenever I heard that uh, 1979 cover. And I just, I, I definitely think that they did it justice. And they didn't make it weird because I'm always worried because like I consider the Contortionist a pretty weird band, <laughs> and uh, and and not not as a bad thing, but just that like oh how are they going to weird this up? Are they going to like slow it down to like one fourth of the speed and like it just be like this chill out track, or you know are they going to go back to their heavier roots and try to beef it up, which I think would be horrible to do with that song. Um, so I think uh, I, I think out of the material I actually found. To be perfectly honest, I found it to be the most uh, surprising aspect of the uh, of the record, or the EP, rather. But yeah, it, and it was also kind of fun getting into a little bit of the whole, you know, cause, since we've been just hammering the whole EPs versus full-length thing, it has been kind of fun getting someone else's perspective on it, especially, you know, the Consortionist, I think, is more known for, for albums. Uh, so the idea of doing an EP seems a little bit foreign, I think, to, to their fan base. Maybe I'm wrong with that. I know. I was like, "Why is this not fifty-eight minutes long?" <laughs> I didn't really think that. I actually kind of enjoyed that it was more of a bite-sized uh, kind of deal. Because I mean, I'm still, I'm still kind of listening to Clairvoyant and trying to, trying to enjoy that one more. And so that that album didn't come out that long ago. So it, you know, it takes a couple of years to digest a Contortionist album or a BT Bam album or you know something like or a periphery album, you know, <laughs> like it, it takes a minute to get all, to get through all that. And, um, you know, it's especially, it's especially hard for me to sit down with an album more than just once or twice, unfortunately, you know, because I've just, I've got such a ridiculous listening schedule every week now where it's like, I'm listening to one or two bands, whole discographies. I'm listening to the interviews that John did that I can't, that I, that I wasn't able to do. And I'm also listening, trying trying to listen to like just random stuff that I enjoy, but like not having time for it. So it, it can take me when I'm a huge fan of a band. It can take me a really long time to absorb a record and like really get it. And half the time, I'm so behind the times that like they're like, "Oh, we got this new one coming out already." And I'm like, "Okay, that's an exact quote." <laughs> Without getting stuck behind the times, let's uh, get into my conversation with Eric of The Contortionist, and we will talk to you all afterward. I had the pleasure this early afternoon of talking to Eric Gunther, keyboardist for The Contortionist, whose new EP, Our Bones, is out August 9th via E1. How are you doing this afternoon? Doing great, man. How about you? Doing good. Uh, you guys recently uh, had stopped through here in Grand Rapids uh, about a week and a half ago, I believe it was at this point. Yeah. Kind of flies by, actually. But yeah, it was about a week ago. Yeah. Um, so something we're kind of sticklish for on this podcast is talking about, you know, just the musical climate that the industry is in and whether fans really are wanting EPs or full lengths or singles and so forth. So obviously with this uh, EP you're putting out, what went into deciding to go this route versus uh, just, you know, putting out a full length? Uh, you know, that's actually a really good question because it's something that, you know, we try and, you know, we have to engage with and, and strategize sort of how we want to reveal and, uh, you know, create our, our story, I guess, as far as like new music we want to put out and new styles that we want to sort of, uh, weave into the band and, uh, doing something like an EP is kind of like, it, it's a little bit more of a, test to ourselves in a way to see like what 
we're capable of because I think every recording process is a little bit different. And when we're trying new things, a lot of times we go in with a goal and go in with a certain perception of what's going to happen. And then, you know, things happen differently. And I think it's a great way when you're doing a short release like that, I think it kind of frees up some of your creativity and there's a little bit less, there's a little bit less of that sort of creative burden of creating this long winded sort of conceptual masterpiece idea. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in the the current climate of the music industry, um, you know, releasing singles and, you know, shorter releases like that has kind of become a more common thing uh, because the album format, for whatever reason, uh, you know, it's kind of dying in a way is, is kind of the general perception, which is, in my mind is a shame because I grew up listening to records and I like, I still enjoy listening to records from, you know, start to finish. But um, these days it seems more effective to sort of put out uh, short bits of ideas and you can kind of get faster feedback that way and, and learn more about, I guess, what, where you want to go next with you know, your sound or something like that. Well, like I said, it's something we've kind of been sticklish for on the podcast and, and we've gotten a, a very interesting array of feedback you know in talking to brandon from atreyu he was like you know like because he has a couple of other bands and one of those projects is more of a sync based band or project i should say and so at that point you know he's very much like and since it's not on a major label or anything like he's like if i get a wild hair up my ass to be like yo let's fucking just put this out and and go we can and he goes and i kind of like that because it's constantly keeping people on their toes and you know we it, it allows us to explore different sonic textures and so forth because we're able to do whatever we want and it's not indicative of how a whole album is going to be it's like no this is just the one song or maybe this is two songs that we felt right. more proud of currently in the moment but then there's been other people we've talked to and or i guess, I guess let me finish the brandon thing because that's where i was going to go um but, you know, he had kind of said, you know, even being in a, a big major label system, something he would rather do is since that's kind of single based and EP based is kind of how the music industry seems to be shifting as far as from the consumer perspective is to actually do the same amount of work you would for a, a full length, but just chop it into to a half or a third and then just release it over the, the same amount of time as you would spend on a normal album cycle. But it keeps people more interested for a longer period of time because the the time that people seem to give a shit about a band is when they're putting out something new. That's when all the socials kind of get the most engagement. That's when you get the most press. So at that point, he's like, you know, kind of feeding mm -hmm. into what the industry is kind of giving you at this point. That seems to make the most sense. But then you're kind of even getting other people who have kind of said like, you know, I think it kind of allows the artist to, you know, like other bands used to do an EP in between records and that also kind of would satiate fans until the next thing. But also maybe if there was the extra new song on there that was kind of hinting toward a newer direction on on where the new material was going, it kind of wasn't such a drastic change for the fan to be like, where the fuck did this come from? Because you kind of had that middle ground, that like 0.5, you know, out of the middle ground, like I said, of uh, mm -hmm. of where to go. And I think that that's... There's a lot of interesting ways that this can go, but it's it's kind of interesting kind of looking at it from your perspective of like, okay, how do we navigate this? And then kind of to actually ask a question out of this, is it actually harder to think, okay, we're going to write and we're, we're only going to do a three to four song EP. Is it harder to kind of really get a tight three or four ideas to go? Or do you still approach it like you normally would a record where you're like, okay, we're going to just kind of write. We might have 10 ideas and we're going to pick the best couple out of that. Um. You know, it's kind of it's kind of difficult to say. I, I would to to your to your earlier point. I, I think all those uh, perspectives make a lot of sense to to me and to the way we've approached things. Uh, you mentioned how lots of lots of bands like to put out an EP in between records, and we've sort of tried to do that. Um, I think what one way that we like to look at it uh, is sort of like a narrative you know like the like the story of the band kind of thing and, and how our sound can go from point a to point b while we're using that ep in between two records to sort of lead our audience into where we want to go next and so i i guess like a lot of times there are you know like you said maybe 10 
11 ideas they get boiled down into three or four songs but I guess my point is a lot of times those decisions on, on where we, what we want to do with the EP are with uh, the next album in mind uh, and where we would want to lead our audience's ear um, so that you know that next LP or whatever the next release is kind of has more context because of, because of you know maybe an EP or, or whatever the shorter release is. Um, I don't know. Just like I said, it was kind of fortuitous that uh, you guys are putting out an EP, and it's something that we very much have been uh, dissecting uh, with everyone we have on. But kind of speaking to that as well, the EP ends. It seems like when you look at the EP and look at the track listing, it seems like an odd choice to end with a cover, let alone of uh, 1979, the, the Smashing Pumpkins song. But the more I listen to the, the album, or I should say the EP, over the last like week or two, I think it really is a perfect fit as far as a non-original song to to accompany these three because it kind of offers a bit of closure was the best word I could come up with uh, when I kept trying to put my finger on what it was. And there's even, you know, the the titular part of the EP name is in that song as well with our bones being in the song. So I kind of was like, ah, there's like a little slight tip of the hat there as well. But how did you land on this song? And were there any others that were in contention to, to be on this EP? Uh, yeah, actually, we... we consistently joke about there's a running list of songs that we want to cover that just kind of come up from time to time and we'll goof off with it and play a little bit in, in rehearsal or something like that. Um, you know, we settled on uh, 1979 just because, well, for one, the Pumpkins are like maybe one of my three favorite bands ever. And even though I, you know, I love everything they've done, I couldn't say no to like doing one of their most popular songs because it seems like, in a way, it's not really deep cut at all. You know, it's a very well-known song, but I think we we uh, we landed on it because it accomplishes a certain vibe, a certain mood, and a certain you know space. Uh, uh, I, I I like to use I like to use a me- metaphor of like teleportation kind of thing, where like great music is able to sort of remove you from your surroundings and put you in a place. And that song in particular does a great job of that. And we wanted to sort of uh, demonstrate that because I think, I think it's something our band kind of relies on a lot is, is sort of uh, creating a mood and a space with, with the music that, like I said, removes people from, you know, their actual uh, time and space, you know, um, so 1979 is, is a good example of a song that does that. And I, I think that a lot of other, our other choices or our other options for cover songs would be more direct rock songs and stuff like that. So we, we went for something that kind of creates a, creates a space of its own. Do you envision, if there's a, a master list of songs that you would eventually like to get to, do you envision doing something like your, your tour mates in BT BAM of doing just a full-on covers record? We, we would love to do that, really. Um, and, and, you know, it may happen one day. Um, and if we did that, it, it would be tough to match the, the span of what Between the Barry and these cover record does because they, they cover some amazing music there. Um, we would probably not even, we wouldn't even touch Queen or so, you know, there's just so many, <laughs> there's so many great hits on that. You know, we, we would probably try and get a little weirder with it and, and tune in to, like I said, uh, that kind of vibe thing and, and music that sucks the listener out uh, into, into a new space, a new dimension. You know, something, listening to the band's discography and kind of prepping for this interview, something I kind of noticed is Mike's vocals have kind of changed a little bit over the last two releases, more so counting this EP as as one of those two. With him kind of opting more to sing on these last two, does it kind of open you all up musically to kind of create more melodies for him to kind of go off of, if seeming like that's the kind of direction he kind of wants to, to go into now? Or... You know, I, I don't know necessarily know how your writing style is, so I don't know how involved Mike is. Where it's like, hey, we just present him with what we think is great, 
and then he just sings over it and then we get to hear the final version or if he's actively involved from the starting process so like he might be like oh here's a melody idea or you might be like hey you know what that's a really cool chorus idea let me do this thing underneath of it and really bring it out more you know i just kind of in listening to it i kind of had these these questions about your writing process a little bit well i i think one thing that has contributed to uh what you've noticed and and not only Mike's style changing, but the entire band over the last few recordings is that um, we, we've sort of learned how each other likes to work and what our sort of musical assets are. And so when we are writing, we, we all kind of write together. It's a very full-on process where, you know, somebody may write a guitar riff, somebody may have a vocal melody. We all We all kind of stay pretty active through every step of the process um which is kind of fun and and it's interesting because of how things once you once you notice how things develop and what things started as eventually you know things that are keyboard riffs turn into guitar riffs that, that turn into vocal melodies and, and it just it just keeps happening like that so i think part of the stylistic changes are based in uh developing that process i guess and and learning how each of us sort of thinks musically and can contribute to uh, the song as a whole um i i think in the in the specific example of like the vocals it just feels a lot more natural and honest for us to be making the music that we are and, and uh, the way things have progressed and will continue to uh, progress, I think, would be based on what what feels natural to us and and what uh, what sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just it's kind of you know we had had a uh, Ken Susie on a while back, and he was talking about you know the fact that the first record he did with them with the contortionist sounds drastically different than everything else that they've done. But he was like, I, I think it's because I pushed them to to be that style, and maybe they really didn't want to be. So it's it's kind of interesting, just like I said, kind of looking at everything, kind of hearing Ken's version of like what happened from the the first record to now, and then kind of being like, huh, I wonder if it's more of like just a collaborative process between everybody, or if it's you know just the age old thing of like you know we just know how to write with each other at this point. Well, I think I think there it, it's a journey. You know, there's no there's no uh, solid formula for us, and that that process, the writing and recording process, has always been changing. I like to look at our records and our output as um, as a logbook of that, in a way, you know, where you can listen to Clairvoyant and understand, at least from my perspective, you know, which was obviously pretty close to the process and, and fully involved, I can understand that record and see how our process there um, was different from language and intrinsic and how it was different from the... Um, our bones EP. And I, I think that process is still changing now. You know, we're, we, we're learning with, with every instance, with, with every recording session. So like in Exoplanet's case, like that's where the, that's where the guys were at the time. And I think it's really great to remind ourselves when we're, you know, entering a new recording session to, to be honest with ourselves and allow that process to, uh, give each recording its own character, you know? Absolutely. Kind of speaking to more of, I guess, more of the, I don't even know. I still, I, so we just had Will Putney on. That was the episode we just dropped. Uh, and he was on basically to talk about his STL tonality uh, plugins package thing. And so we kind of looking around at uh, some of your various stuff. I see that you're also offering uh, a preset for like synth patches and so forth. And kind of wanted to know, Ooh. You know, because it seems like everyone kind of is now doing these things. Has it been interesting to kind of see that there's now a demand for, for these things and having them kind of be an ancillary source of income for, for musicians? Uh, yeah, actually. I, I started selling those presets uh, for a couple of reasons. One, people would ask about them. Um, and, you know, my, my pack isn't anything crazy. It's 60 presets spread across four different sense that I use the most and two of them are plugins and two of them are analog hardware sense. So it's not anything too comprehensive, but 
I wanted to be able to have something up there that people, you know, producers that were interested could refer to and see what was going on. Um, the other reason was that people would ask for the keyboard stems all the time uh, for clairvoyant because, you know, when we record, I pretty much produce myself and it's its own layered, you know, production. And uh, I kind of wanted to have it out there so people could really dig in and see all the layers of what was going on. Um, I definitely think that uh, it, it's kind of become expected or almost necessary for musicians if they do have a digital product like that to put it out there and, and sort of uh, invite uh, young you know musicians and people that want to learn more about the process in uh, and see under the hood, so to speak. Um, I, I think it's kind of it's it's kind of a sign of the times. We're kind of in a fascinating time for that because the tools to make a decent sound and recording, you know, are are just right in front of you. You could download a few things off the internet and have great guitar tone, great synth tones, great drum tones, and and do a whole record in the box um, in a way that you know has never been possible before. So I think that's kind of cool. Um, it, it gets people more interested in your music too. Have you had people who have bought these these patches and so forth from you kind of have a deeper understanding of what you did on those records, especially you know talking about like the clairvoyant stuff, like the stems? Have you had people come up to you and be like, "Wow, I I knew that there was stuff on there, but there was so much more there that I just didn't even know," and it kind of taught me more about like layering or or any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, you hear that all the time, and that's really encouraging. Uh, just to have people that. Uh, are interested enough to dig in and uh, pay attention to maybe try and learn something or try and gain something, some, some new knowledge about, you know, our process and, and arrangement and everything else. Cause they, there are very busy recordings. We do have <laughs> a lot of stuff going <laughs> on. Sometimes, so it's kinda, uh, I, I would, I'll go as far to say sometimes it gets a bit messy. <laughs> <laughs> Not at the level of uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Speaking of Queen, with the what was it? Was there eighty vocal tracks? I think they said at that point on that one. Yeah, no, they're 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 definitely uh, early grave. I can't. I'm not even going to try and quote the exact number, but there are a huge amount of layers. Mike did for. Uh, I guess every song on the EP. 1979 definitely would stay pretty raw. But for uh, Early Grave and Follow, there were just huge layers. Um, you know, sometimes, I'm, I'm not even going to guess, but almost almost 30 or 40 layers of tracks and stuff, uh, different harmonies and stuff like that. Yeah, so a lot of times we'll lay stuff down just to sort of have a bed, uh, have, have an array of things to toy with and try different arrangements and different mixing techniques out. But, uh, yeah. I mean, you, we have the ability to 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 do it, so why not? Um, we we like really really sick recordings, I think. You know, kind of a, the last few questions I have for you in wrapping up. I don't think people realize that there is many keyboardists or samplers and so forth in rock and metal as there really are. So, are there any in any of the bands that maybe you tour with, or just in general, that you kind of look at for like inspirations and just kind of uh, want to put a spotlight on? Ooh, that's a good question. A lot, of, a lot of times, my inspiration lately is, uh, at least as far as keyboard players, has been uh, a lot of jazz musicians um, and sometimes producers and stuff like that. Uh, been listening to a lot of uh, retro wave stuff. Uh, this guy, Com Truce, has really great textures. Um, I guess in our genre, they really you're right. There really aren't a lot, and we really don't tour with a lot of. Uh, keyboard players that's a really tough question well i was gonna um, say like kind of looking i guess it's more like extreme metal i would say but like i was thinking like off the top of my head it's like and this isn't an extreme metal but like uh burton from him is a you know someone that does a lot with more t technical piano and synth stuff uh you have marta bleeding through Lindsay over in cradle of filth uh sean uh when he was in chimera you know there, there's examples of it throughout you know the last couple of decades or so of, of metal and rock and so forth but i just i feel like they're kind of it's, it's an often overlooked part of the show and part of the band um well i mean i could go back to 
one of my original inspirations is simply, you know, Nine Snails is a great example of how, like, you know, how keyboards and, and that type of production style can be often grittier and, and heavier than, you know, a typical guitar, you know, bass and drums arrangement of a rock band. So, I mean, to me, Trent Reznor is just sort of the best example. Um, Sean Z did some cool stuff in Chimera. I, I remember those records being pretty, having some interesting sense production. Yeah, kind of a, a fun last two questions. You know, you, you recently shared on your uh, Instagram a few months back about you know, wanting to do a return to, to From Exile. So I kind of wanted to know, has there been any developments on that front at all? Well, uh, that's funny you ask, because that, that was my Atlanta band uh, that I started in college. And I did recordings with a guy named A.L. Levy, who was in this band called Doth, and Sean Z was actually in that band for a little while. Um, A.L. actually introduced me to the Contortionist in 2012, so... Some of that, uh, I guess what I was doing this for myself precipitated uh, what I'm doing now. Um, so they, the guy that engineered uh, the Our Bones EP is a Atlanta-based uh, producer named John Douglas, who's been a longtime friend of mine, and he joined uh, my band years and years ago, and we've been working on a record for almost six years now. And it's kind of gotten pushed aside because of all the contortion stuff going on for a million different reasons. But uh, we are slowly getting there. And uh, hopefully we'll have something next year. Um, as far as shows and things like that, we, we haven't had a live band ready uh, for a few years now. But we'll see. It's it's a bit different than the contortionists. But, uh, uh, and I hesitate to try to describe it, but... <laughs> It's it, it's definitely still prog, you know, prog rock, prog metal. I think people will get it. It's definitely going to happen. It just kind of is one of those things in this day and age. It seems like when anyone posts something like that, it's like, oh, you know, like this thing. And you're just kind of like, wait, is this like a, a pseudo teaser of like, I might be bringing this back because uh, I've been in that headspace lately writing for new stuff or whatever. So I, I wasn't sure. It, I mean, it's not to say that it went unnoticed. It just was one of those things that as I was looking at it, I was like, you know, I've seen this too often where like a few months later or maybe a year later, people are like, where the fuck did this record come from? And it's like, this post was basically the, the, the breadcrumb trail that I was leaving and letting you know, like, Hey, some new shits on the way. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the idea. It's always going to be kind of a, uh, a labor of love, you know, my, my original band kind of thing, but, uh, it's, it exists. It's out there. The record's, you know, 80% done. So hopefully next year we'll have something out. Awesome. And the last question before I have you, you know, do the, the typical plugging of socials and so forth. Um, I noticed in listening to All Gray that there is a very cinematic sense on that, that song. And it kind of made me wonder if there's any interest in doing like video game or film score or any of that kind of stuff, just scoring in general. Absolutely. That's uh, actually always been sort of a loose long-term goal to, uh, I guess, you know, pursue the rock and roll thing just because it's happening and I have a great opportunity with an intuitionist. And I, I like to look at what I can offer to the band as that sort of theatric uh, element. And I, I definitely, I've done a few uh, independent video games, you know, from back in the day um, and a few short films that never made it anywhere. So it's always been something I've dabbled in. Um, but haven't yet had the time to totally focus on a demo reel and get it going. So having you know, having said that, yes, definitely plan on doing soundtracking and, and anything, anything I can like that. Pretty much any any movie that appeals to me these days, it's sort of based in that um, how the soundtrack works for me and, and how I felt that it applied to the uh, the story and the film. So. I look forward to one day doing some soundtrack. Yeah, like I said, just was something that, especially that song, I just kind of, in listening to it in headphones and kind of doing some other work and so forth, I, I just kind of had this, like, grandiose sense of, like, oh, you know, like, you could almost see it, like, on a script where it's, like, you know, shots, uh, external yeah. of whatever, blah, 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 and then I'm just like, huh, I wonder, you know, if 
just that's something that you have in mind when you're doing stuff. Yeah, it, it almost it almost feels like a, like the credits could be rolling or something like that, you know, because it's it's short, succinct, it has a quick idea, but still sets a sets a mood, sets a a setting, I guess. And uh, lastly, uh, what does the rest of this year have for you, and where can people find you or the Contortionist online? Uh, the Contortionist is finishing out this tour between the Barrier and me, and then we're going to Europe next month to do a few festivals and uh, some headlining shows. Um, we have some plans cooking for the fall, but nothing I can really announce yet. And well, you can find our stuff at thecontortionist-store.com. <laughs> I think that's one of the first websites I've heard of with a hyphen in it. Yeah. I, I think it changed recently. And then uh, lastly, where can people find you and the band online? Uh, the contortionist-store.com. Uh, you can pre-order the EP there. All right. Well, thank you for taking the time and uh, safe travels out on the rest of this uh, this tour. And uh, hopefully we'll see you back around Midwest at some point uh, before the year ends. All right, man. Yeah, thank you. So that was my conversation with Eric of The Contortionist. Um, Dan obviously couldn't be there, and I know he's uh, been a, a longer fan of the band than I have, but uh, what would you think of that, chat? Yeah, I thought it was cool. I thought it was fun just hearing, you know, his idea of, you know, his reasoning behind, you know, why why is every album different? You know, why... Uh, why have you guys gone and kind of you didn't you didn't specifically say why did you guys go in a softer direction because that's not really a good question because they've soft and heavy are so subjective you know um there's obviously well, i'm sure to a lot of people this is still considered heavy yeah <laughs> that's that's what i was saying like to me yeah sure you go back and compare it to exoplanet and it sounds like soft rock but uh there's still heavy parts in it you know like this baroness chat that we're trying to get off the ground you know, there there's a band that's absolutely heavy that doesn't have screaming vocals. You know what I mean? So, uh, but I, I I liked him just you know basically like this is how we've all discovered that we like working together. This is how we you know come up with these ideas and and how we just kind of always want to be shifting. Because I think with a lot of bands the shift is subtle and they don't always even understand necessarily that they've fundamentally changed. And so to hear him switch it up like this on every single release is, is kind of refreshing and kind of keeps you guessing on, on what they're going to do next. Yeah, and I like the fact that he was pretty upfront about how they, they write. Um, I always find that to be interesting because, you know, like I said in the interview, you know, we do, I don't really think it's been noted how the contortionist writes material. It's it's just, hey, here's you know a new record. Um, but it is interesting that, you know, when you've been working with someone as long as these guys have, you just kind of know how each other works. And I think in the day and age now where you can, you know, I mean, I know Eric also plays guitar and stuff like that. So obviously he probably is proficient enough in writing songs and arranging songs himself and being able to just bring the band maybe a whole song. But it might be one of those things where he realizes that that's not what he needs to do in that band. And so the fact that I think everyone kind of knows how to, to work and write for the contortionist, I think is actually really refreshing as opposed to being like, well, I came in with my idea and, you know, like, I mean, we talk about this all the time with Deftones. It's like, okay, here's Chino coming in and being like, oh, I came up with this, these ideas. And then Steph's like, I'm not feeling it. And then, you know, now we get, you know, Koino or uh, we get Gore. And then it's like, you know, like afterward, everyone's like, oh, it really wouldn't. I think we really need to have Steph involved in this one again. And it's like, yeah, no shit. Like, it's the only one of the few records that you guys have done that sounds not entirely like a Deftones record because not everyone was involved. And there are ebbs and flows that come from that. I don't want to call it like budding of heads, but just kind of the, the melding of ideas. I think, you know, Diamond Eyes for Deftones is a great example of, you know, Chino coming with, with songs now that he plays guitar and all that kind of shit. But I think it's a great example of what happens when you really mix Chino and Steph. And I think White Pony is the other really great example of mixing their two styles together and the rest of the band kind of finding their spots. And I think the contortionist, from what I listen to of the band, has kind of always done that. I, I think that they're a really great complementary unit unto themselves. Yeah, I love the idea of a band as an entity. You know, you know, as an entity that that kind of exists, not not necessarily outside of the band members themselves, but it, it being kind of just this machine where every single person in the band is a key component, and you know, without each individual component, you know, it kind of unravels. Not every band is like that, so it, it, it's fun to think of the band as kind of this living, breathing, you know, kind of kind of 
separate organism, but you know these guys come together. They all do their they all do their jobs, and what you end up with is is something that they can all be proud of. Instead of it, you know, be because whether it, whether it does well or it doesn't do well, like as long as they're proud of it and they all did exactly what their roles were, I think uh, I think that they're always going to be happy with it. And it's not necessarily going to matter whatever the charting success is. Speaking of all that, though, I was pretty excited to hear that. I guess we're getting a new From Exile record or or whatever this new iteration of it is going to be. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exciting. Uh, they. I, I would I would like for it to just be under the same moniker, just so like because dude I cannot keep track of another band name. You know what I mean? Like because like it, it's one of those like I used to just like bands, and then I then I started becoming fans of of the individual people in the bands, and then it's like they've got side projects and it's all under different names and it's just it's so confusing and I'm old and kids these days and get off my lawn you know but like. It really, uh, I would like to see it come out, you know, uh, under the same moniker and, and we don't have to go through and find a new band name. Even if it sounds completely different, like, I don't care. <laughs> kind of speaking to a new name and something that sounded good. Uh, I'm currently drinking a Bell's Chocolate Cherry Vanilla Stout. And uh, I was pretty excited about it because a lot of Bell's beer is kind of hit or miss for me. It's very... I mean, exactly what I just said. It's hit or miss. Uh, but usually their stouts are really good. Their Expedition stouts are really great. Their Kalamazoo stouts are really great. Um, they have some other interesting beers here and there. But uh, typically for me, I- I'm going to stick to the dark beers. Uh, that's usually where they seem to do the best to me. Um, so I was at a local grocery store that has a, a tap uh, system in the in the middle of the store. And this is one of them that sounded pretty interesting. Dude, that sounds amazing. My grocery stores have nothing like that. We it's the only one out of the chain of grocery stores that has that currently. Um, so we're kind of spoiled in that regard, and it's constantly like uh, I think that this last week it was because it changes like every every week or so. Um, Bell, it was like a Bell's tape tap takeover. I think they have another one coming up, but they have brewmasters and so forth and uh, distillers and and so forth come through because obviously it's in the middle of the beer liquor wine selection. So it was eighteen bucks, but I didn't have to pay for the growler, so it's like eighteen bucks for the growler, brand new and the growler filled. So it's like you can't really beat it. Um, to try a new beer, I, I kind of went all in on it thinking it would be really good because you can't sample anything. And uh, it's not that it's terrible. I think just that when I tried making my own cherry vanilla stout, actually I tried making a cherry vanilla porter, um, the problem when you're doing anything with cherries is you get this like tart flavor and it kind of overwhelms everything else, uh, at least from what I've found. And so I think in this, the the beer is a little bit more sour than I would have wanted it to be. It almost kind of is more of like the the Goza kind of family, if that makes sense, and, and like the sours themselves. But um, I've actually been sitting on this for like still sealed uh, for probably about five days now. Uh, and the sour flavor is kind of mellowed out quite a bit. So um, maybe that's the key. Uh, buy this beer, let it sit for a hot minute, and then take a drink. <laughs> Unless you're into sour, more sour like stouts, which I'm not personally. See, I actually kind of enjoy the tart cherry flavor. Um, I like it to just kind of leave an after aftertaste, like a sour. But I do enjoy sour beers, so it's not too much of a stretch. But uh, I also like a sour beer to me still has to taste like a beer, which I think is hard to do. It's a lot easier just to like melt Jolly Ranchers and you know make it somehow. <laughs> and like I don't enjoy that stuff. Like I'm not eating. I'm not eating Halloween candy. You know so. But yeah, I, I definitely enjoy like the more fruity tart flavors. Like even I, I even had like a tart peach one time, which I thought was really good. Um, but the, no, my my beer of choice this week has been uh, it's called Scale of Complexity uh, by Four Hands Brewing uh, here in St. Louis, and uh, it's a pale ale with uh, <laughs> well with peach and apricot. Uh, I don't want to say flavor; it's, it's more like I don't. know, What do beer people say? Like notes <laughs> of yeah. notes and. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you know, whatever whatever that means, it's not overpowering in any way, but it's it, it's kind of like my continuation and my love of like kind of juicy IPAs, which are which are bitter but also not really sour. But uh, the hazy, it, it's they, they call it a hazy IPA, which you know if you drink enough of them, you definitely can get there. Uh, but it's uh it's it's really good. And I'm started like I started with Space Dust, and that kind of got me because that thing is so uh, so citrusy. And uh, the the scale of complexity was cool just because it had kind of a, um, 
you know, more of a fruity flavor, but not just like the straight citrus blast uh, that I'll get from something like Snapper or from Space Dust. And yeah, I'll definitely be checking this one out. Uh, I, hopefully, the price goes down on a little too a little bit though. Like I'm really cheap, so like ten bucks for four cans when I could get six cans of Snapper for eight bucks. You know that sort of thing. Uh, it's hard, but I, I'm, I'm glad I, I'm glad I took the leap and and, and tried it. And uh, I, I I'm definitely going to be checking out uh, Four Hands. They're really all over the place as far as a brewery goes because they have like they have this like disgusting like peanut butter. It's like peanut butter and chocolate, which I'm sure John you would Ooh. love, but um, oh, yeah, maybe I'll send you a can sometime. It's uh, it's okay, but uh, they they do all kinds of really weird stuff. They got just like straight milk stout, which I do not like at all. Uh, and then they have the obviously they have the chocolate milk stout, <laughs> and uh, dude, the best the best chocolate milk stout that is out the best chocolate stout that is out there is the Young's brand chocolate stout. So fucking delicious, and if you get there, it's it's a cherry. I don't think it's a cherry lambic, but it, if you take the cherry, uh, whatever Young's or maybe it's Smith's, but I think it's a Young's brand as well. But if you get that and then do a half and half and get like this cherry chocolate stout, like it's oh my god, it's so fucking good. Um, but those are like you're looking at you know seven dollars a bottle for those. So I mean, it's like when you do it, like yeah, you're getting like two full full glasses out of it for like. 14 bucks so i guess it's like brewery prices for something that's so good but man if you want to really treat yourself if you like chocolate dark beers go find the young's uh chocolate stout you'll just blow your mind i'll definitely check it out if i'm in the mood for a chocolate stout i know uh i'm gonna go see zeo here in about a week or so and uh, i told them that i would bring them beer uh if they came to st louis so i'm gonna assume that that's the only reason they're coming to st louis so i've got to really step up my beer game and uh, try to, so I, I know Scott said that he's, you know, more of a stout guy and the other guys will drink IPAs, which I mean, I've got like a whole arsenal of IPAs, you know, that I can, that I can show off, but, uh, definitely the, uh, for Scott and a stout, I haven't had a good stout in a long time. So I'm, I, I might, I might just get him like the most ridiculous stout I can think of, which is probably going to be like the peanut butter chocolate or something like that. No, speaking of uh, having drinks with band people, uh, this uh, past week, I actually had the privilege of going out with uh, Danny, a.k.a. Amigo the Devil and his lady, and uh, we went to Founders and uh, had some delicious beers, and they ate some food and had some conversations on the patio and so forth, and uh, I it was funny. I forget what Danny was actually going to drink at first, but then I got my Port Barrel uh, Hoppenberry uh, beer, which it's the, the PA Razzle Hoppenberry. It's a 6.6%. It's a blend of the, uh, beer city IPA and Rubeus raspberry ale aged in a port wine barrel. So stupidly delicious. It has a little bit of that, uh, you know, Danny and I were talking cause he goes, wait a minute, how did I miss that? I want one of those. So <laughs> as we both were drinking, he goes, it's really crazy that it, it does have that back end flavor of like a, a nice, you know, port wine, um, which is kind of a little bit more caramely and sweet, um, kind of more of a dessert kind of thing. And, uh, it was one of those that, you know, super good. I think, uh, his lady Alicia ended up getting, I'm trying to remember what she ended up getting off the top of my head. Uh, I'm looking at their list right now. Uh, I think she ended up, no, uh, my wife got it, the peach cream ale and that was pretty good. Um, then Danny ended up getting the what the fuck did he get? Oh, then Danny ended up getting this uh the PR stunt cream ale, which is a, a three point eight. So I mean nothing super big, but it's a uh it's a cream ale f- uh, with a light dry hop of uh, Simcoe and Chinook hops. A real nice easy drink uh, in the summertime. And then I ended up getting the uh, Shark Jump the Cow, which is a uh, milk sugar with a sweet body and creaminess. It's basically an IPA with like dank citrus and tropical uh, notes to it. So basically, it's like a juicy IPA. So Dan probably would like it. Maybe not with the milk sugars. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't like sweet drinks. <laughs> I really don't. It, it's hard because I, I just don't. Uh, I, I, I just I, I enjoy bitter flavors so much more, which is why I can't really get into the mixed drinks too much. I mean, every now and again, somebody will make me something that's like makes me want to like start screaming and gagging because it's so bitter and crazy and like a, a cocktail sort of thing. But uh, that's that's almost too extreme. I don't know. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hard to please. I think uh, we have a, a trip to Founders uh, this weekend coming up. So I think the uh, one that's got my eye, I think I've had it before, uh, is called the 12 Feet Under. And it's a, <laughs> a burly 14.3%. Uh, 
Challenge accepted. It's a twice barrel aged and twice dry hopped barrel aged Imperial IPA. So it's a, it'll get you drunk. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like in record time. Oh yeah, and then uh, while we were hanging out with uh, the two of them after the show in their van, they had just been at New Glarus uh, the day before in Wisconsin, and I've never had New Glarus because if you understand anything about them, they uh, they are very. We only brew the beer for us, and we know it's super good, but we want you to come to our area. We don't really distribute it, and uh, so they had a bunch of that stuff. And then I, oh my god, it was they had this one. It was like some kind of a red something or other. I I don't fucking know. It was like nice and sweet, and like kind of had the right amount of tart, but it was light and refreshing. And then I don't remember what the other one was off the top of my head either. I mean, because I've been drinking like all day at that point. But Bridget and I were just like, so we're going to Wisconsin in like two weeks then, right? To to go to this place and try all their magical beers. I know I know that if I ever drive up to Grand Rapids, that the first place you and I are going is is Founders. Uh, and I'd say I'd say we just do the podcast live right there. You know, <laughs> like. I mean, there's plenty of places that I have done uh, the podcast at, whether you realize it or not. <laughs> sure, sure. But um, kind of been wrapping up just because this ran a little bit longer with the beer talk. But, I mean, we haven't really gone that deep dive on, on beer as of late, so I think it's justified. Totally. Um, if you would... If you would like to keep up with The Contortionist, you can find them simply enough at Facebook and Instagram at The Contortionist, Twitter at TC Band, and if you would like to keep up with Eric, you can find him on Instagram at no underscore I'm underscore Eric, G-U-E-N-T-H-E-R, Eric Gunther. Um, and if you would like to keep up with Metal Nexus, you can find them at MetalNexus.net, Facebook at Metal Nexus, Instagram at Metal.Nexus, and Twitter at Metal underscore Nexus. And Dan can tell you where he can be found on draft. I can be found on draft here in my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, you can also find me on Facebook under Daniel Terry. You can find me on Twitter at DiscussMetalDan. You can send me an email at DiscussMetalDan at gmail.com. And uh, you can find my other podcast, Discography Discussion, at DiscussMetal.com. And if you would like to keep up with all things this podcast, you can find us simply enough on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Bruce Speak Pod. Find us on YouTube at Bruce Speak Pod or Brutally Speaking Podcast. Uh, you can see some of the in-person interviews we've done. If you would like to email us, you can do such at BrutallySpeaking at gmail.com. Keep up with our show sponsors, The Bean Bastard, at TheBeanBastard.com. Facebook and Instagram are The Bean Bastard. And for The Brutally Speaking Podcast, I am John. And I'm Dan. We will talk to you all next time.